Street Smart Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the new innovative concept of real estate investing. No more expensive courses. No more high-priced mentors taking your money and leaving you without ongoing support. Become a full-time seasoned real estate investor by participating with our already successful team members. Now is the time to stop talking about real estate investing and start doing. Take action. Just ask and we will help you. We promise one thing, no BS. For more info, www.streetsmartrei.com. Hello. Hello, Mr. Thomas. Hello, Jason. How have you been doing today? Uh, good. Good morning, you guys. Hopefully you're well. Good morning. I'm doing great. Okay, so we will have, we'll have one more minute to start, right? So we are already live. Very good. Well, hopefully everybody's doing well today. We're ready for winter. Here it comes. It's, see, behind me, I'm sure the weather's changing. You know, every day it gets a little colder here in Calgary. So good time to look at real estate. Of course, always good time to look at the real estate, right? So. Okay, let me have a look. Perfect. So let's start it, guys. All right. Very good. All right. So, hello, everyone. I'd like to uh, introduce today, I'd like to introduce Thomas Thurmeyer from the Small Business Legal Center out of Calgary. He's uh, going to be talking about uh, uh, structuring deals. He's going to be talking about asset protection, joint ventures. Uh, he's been in the game for about how long? Am I mistaken here? Over 15 years. Am I not mis mistaken yeah. there, Thomas? No, that's right, Jason. We've been, uh, this firm's been around for about 15 years. I've been practicing law for about, uh, Actually, 18 years today. I was called to the bar 18 years ago on this day. So, um, happy oh, anniversary. Celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, let's uh, let's get started with, uh, you know, Thomas, if you can tell us a little bit about what is asset protection and why, why should people care about it? Yeah, certainly. That, you know, I think that's probably one of the most popular questions that we see is that, um, first of all, a lot of people don't know, you know, asset protection, what it means, or risk management, sort of what, what it means, why they should really care, what to do about it. I think intuitively, a lot of people feel that, um, you know, they know to protect their assets from from risk or from liability, and they sort of get that sense of it. But really, as a planner, as a lawyer, or you know, as accountants or tax estate planners. They'll often look at this in, in a far more detailed and more in-depth way. So when we talk about asset protection, really it's talking about trying to structure your affairs, your, your transactions, your holdings, any property interests you have, whether that's personal property or, or real property, such as you know, land or real estate. Trying to structure your affairs to maximize um, your use and enjoyment of that property or holdings, but to minimize the liabilities, whether they're known liabilities, uh, uncertain liabilities, sort of risk factors, 
or even just you know potential um, liabilities from something like say tax, for example. So, you know, the asset protection really speaks to um, the structuring of your affairs, how you hold your properties and interests, and how you interact with other people, whether it's a matter of contracts or ownership or what have you. So, part of that when we talk about asset protection. The first part, assets, is also something that a lot of planners or practitioners think of quite broadly. Assets can be a very broad definition, meaning, you know, property, all, all things. So in law, when we talk about property, there's personal property, um, maybe your bicycle or kitchen table or your bank account, but it could also include things like uh, contract rights, intellectual property, um, you know, RSPs or savings or bonds or things. So there's sort of personal property or real property, land. And they're treated, you know, somewhat differently in, in law, but that property is a very broad concept when we're thinking about asset protection because we want to look at all things. And as you can imagine, for a lot of people, you know, there is no right answer to life. So everyone is different. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a different family dynamic. Everyone has different planning needs and we always want to uh, to look at that so part of asset protection is really looking at a broad picture of someone and uh, trying to look at what they hope to achieve for assets um, you know some assets are more risky than others uh, you know certain assets there might be risk flowing from just the mere ownership of something so for example if I have a bag of diamonds or a bag of cash I'm not likely to get sued over that. There's not really any risk or liability or potential from just owning that. There's pretty much nothing but benefit. Um, I guess what I do with it might lead to tax liability, but I'm not likely to have legal liability over it. On the other hand, if I own land, real estate, um, as the registered owner of land, I'm responsible for a number of things. So when we talk about um, being a registered owner of land, I could have liability for municipal bylaws, for property taxes, or for the state of the land under something called the Occupier's Liability Act, for example, where if somebody hurts themselves on the land, maybe you know they'll sue me as the landowner. So certain assets are um, a bit more risky than others. So you say, well, what is asset protection? Why do we care? You know, that's why we care, as we're trying to look at who is the person? What do they have? What do they hope to do? Uh, and we want to we want to cons consider that. So, looking at taxes, looking at estate planning for the person, looking at any risk or, or use of the assets. These are the things we think about, and we often look to consider sources of liability. So, for many people, if you say, "Well, okay, asset protection, risk. I don't want to be sued. Okay, let's just. I get it." Well, again, you know, we have to look a little bit broader than that to say, well, what are the sources of liability? Yes, lawsuits are one. Maybe there's a lawsuit for a contract that you're in, for, for debt, or some contract you were to perform. But there could be um, there could be liability over um, even you know negligence or, or ownership of the property, for example. Again, the Occupier's Liability Act. So lawsuits could flow from various relationships or ownerships. In addition to that, 
sources of liability include things like income tax, you know, including capital gains for real estate, um, personal and business relationships. If you are a debtor or creditor with other parties, if you have co-owners of the business, we might have liability in, in that regard. And of course, we can't forget about, you know, good old uh, estate tax and, and claims. Um, if we're looking about a complete planning picture, we try to look at someone's, you know, estate succession planning as well quite often and we want to consider any probate or estate uh, taxes. So asset protection is, is really quite a, a broad thing, Jason. And, and, you know, of course, these are long-winded answers, but to give a concept of it, it's really about looking at how you structure yourself um, and your relationship to the world. Very good, very good. So, so I have a question. What kind of the biggest challenges have you ever faced? Like what kind of transactions? Uh, give, give an example of the most challenging uh, legal transactions for, related to real estate investing you have ever, ever done. Yeah, sure, York. That's a great question. I mean, and I have lots of, of you know, horror stories, lots of uh, <laughs> things. Now, I think that's, you know, the number one message I might hope for people to take away is that every deal is different and mm -hmm. most people when I speak to them they tend to say well you know I got a real estate purchase it's just an easy one let's get it done faster cheaper you know let's get it done and a lot of them you know someone's buying a house to live in or something a lot of it can be fairly straightforward we hope most most transactions are but um, lots of things can go awry and sometimes they do so um, for example I can think of uh, someone who was not um, legally divorced but just separated you know this comes up all the time they're thinking oh no no I'm single and um, the reality is they're actually legally married and they've been separated for you know 20 years that's great mm -hmm. but they're legally married and so the moment they want to deal with the property you know they've got problems they've got dower rights and stuff so I had um, you know a, a lady in that circumstance a, a wonderful lady uh, you know, senior lady trying to deal with her property in, in need, needing to sell and deal with her property. She had separated from her husband, you know, 20 some years ago. Last she heard, he went back somewhere and, um, you know, now needing to sell her property and she can't, not without a court order. Um, you know, because either her or her house or her spouse had lived in the property during their marriage. And so, even though they were separated for so long and in their minds no longer married, in law they were legally married and he had legal rights towards the property. So she couldn't sell or mortgage or do anything with that property without him. And that surprisingly comes up quite a bit. Another thing is name changes can happen a lot. Um, an example just of a war story that I think is more interesting story is um, a client, a very nice young couple, had a beautiful big home and a lovely big backyard, sort of a, you know, a very nice home, big mm -hmm. backyard with a mountain view. And they spent a bunch of money um, renovating and fixing that backyard, landscaping, hundreds you know, of thousands of dollars. It was beautiful. So they had hired a, a contractor, consultant to do the work, and he touted himself as an expert and said, well, I deal, I'm an expert at doing uh, landscaping and dealing with cities and development matters. So he did all this work. They went to sell the property. The buyer 
was looking to buy and get the updated real property report with the stamp of municipal compliance at the time of purchase. And all of a sudden they found out, well, you know what, this landscaping was done without permits. Some of the landscaping was built on right-of-ways, including, you know, a concrete swale for rainwater. That's a physical concrete swale on the land that the contractor would have been maybe putting his toolbox or his lunch on. He should have known not to build over that, but he did. So the city would not provide compliance. So there they had to rip out, I don't know, $80,000 worth of landscaping before they could get compliance to sell. The buyer's upset. They dreamed of the backyard, sitting to drink wine and look at the mountains. The seller's got a problem. It's almost an instant litigation matter. And the moral of the story is, you know, the homeowner really should be aware of his real property report and what's on his land. What are their restrictive covenants or utility right-of-ways where you cannot build on? And his contractor sure should have been aware of that, and I'm sure will likely get sued over it. But, you know, it's that sort of thing that is a very sort of fundamental element to, you know, to, I guess, both parties. But for me, I meet the seller, and he's saying, hey, Tom, I'm selling my house. It closes in a week. Let's go. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got these problems with the backyard that are going to have to involve, you know, weeks, if not months of work and things to do. So, um, you know, there's, there's lots of horror stories like that, for sure. Okay. Don't think he's a lawyer here. <laughs> so you know, anyway, that that's that's a great uh, a great question here for sure. Uh, there is more to come, definitely, right? So, well, that's right. That's right. So, Thomas, when it comes to structuring your business, what's the most common choice that people are using for structuring their investing businesses? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of choices with that, and you know, the, a very common question is, well, you know, what are my choices? What can I, I choose from? In many of our, our sessions um, that we've done together, you know, I often speak about um, incorporating or partnerships or sole proprietorships and things. Um, those are really the most common choices um, to flow from it. But, you know, some of the concepts to remember are things like, um, you know, time is your friend. You know, uh, to structure yourself on the eve of a transaction or the eve of trouble, maybe the the eve of bankruptcy, that that's going to be a problem. You know, if you're structuring to avoid debts, that that's going to be an issue. Um, of course, insurance for any transactions, no matter what structure you choose, you might want to look at having you know proper insurance. And in fact, insurance would be required if you're you're placing you know, a mortgage. So, when we talk about planning after the fact or you know trying to get blood from a stone kind of thing these principles of asset protection stand out so looking at our structure then well we want to create it because whatever we choose that's how the world is going to treat us that's how the law will look at it that's how a tax man will look at it so if we're looking at incorporating for example we are creating a separate legal person and a separate taxpayer and it'll be treated that way legally and from a tax perspective as well. So that's probably one of the most common structures, Jason, for people who are investors. Certainly buyers that are buying commercial property, they tend to look at um, corporate structures for obvious reasons. Not, not only tax planning, co-ownership, financing issues, but um, you know, also liability concerns. Um, you know, there's not too many uh, 
commercial shopping center is owned by Bob the guy. You know, it's usually held by an incorporation as a separate legal entity and a, and a separate taxpayer for all those reasons I mentioned. You know, liability, tax, financing, disposition and sale, um, estate planning, and all that, that kind of stuff. So most investors, as they grow, will look at a corporate structure over time, um, although things are changing. And uh, this morning, we could probably spend our entire time talking about proposed tax changes from, from the government. There's lots of things coming forward. Um, obviously, we don't know what will be passed. It's been all over the paper, and, and that topic is a bit you know, beyond our scope today. But yeah. Yeah. as an example, to corporately hold real estate, you know, the tax treatment of that is potentially changing. Um, whether it will change radically or at all, we don't know. The government has gone through a consultation program. There's lots of people that have commented very strongly, and I mean not just interested landowners, I mean tax professionals and experts. Um, the Canadian Bar Association had a very good response to it with respect to what they believe to be a concern. Um, so, you know, we'll have to see what actually happens there over time. But the point I'm trying to make is a, a corporately held commercial or investment property is very popular, probably the most popular. But over time, lenders have tightened rules about that and tax rules are changing. So again, every deal is different. The lending criteria is always changing. The world is always changing. The rules and taxes and laws are always changing. It might not seem that way because sometimes it happens slow, but there is no one answer. There's no one way to structure. It depends on all those factors. And so there's no normal here. We have to look at the transaction and, and the party. But that said, if you do a sole proprietorship, it's just Tom the guy doing the deal. So there is no separate person, no separate taxpayer. I'm going to go off and buy a rental property or a commercial building or you know something like that. So I'm on title. I'm on the mortgage. All my assets are at risk. Uh, with respect to that, if there's some problem with the property, I personally get sued. There's no separate person. There's no division. It's just me. Even if I use a trade name, call, call it, you know, cool shopping center. It's just me. It's just a trade name. So from an asset protection standpoint, you know, that's kind of risky and not as popular. People still do it because it's easy. They don't have to register anything or do anything. They can rely on their own credit, go off and do a deal or two, um, you know, deal with their banker in their own name, and, and of course, it's easy. But as a sole proprietor, it's, it's just me. There's no separate person, no separate taxpayer. A very common choice, too, is Jason and Tom go together to do a deal. Perhaps we form a partnership. A partnership can arise just by mere activity, so us getting together to sort of buy a property and fix it up. But it has a bunch of legal consequences we're often very concerned about. Joint and several liability, so no separate person, no separate taxpayer. It's Tom and Jason together against the world personally. So if something happens with the property, we're both going to get sued jointly together and severally, separately, apart. So if there's a million dollar judgment, it will be, will both be sued and they could collect from either one of us, maybe just me. 
and I'd have to go after you if I could, but I could be on the hook for the whole amount. So a partnership in law has distinctive elements to it that are often a concern um, for, for people. We don't typically see a partnership. Now, lots of real estate investors do deals together. And in fact, you know, that's very common for investors to meet people through these types of events and get to know other investors. So we might do a joint venture, which we'll, we'll you know, talk about a little bit more detail, but a joint venture often is expressly not a partnership. It's not just something that Jason and Tom get together and go and do together. It's more about a uh, specified contract, usually an agreement, typically a, a written contract that's going to spell out the elements of our, of our shared project. And it's usually specifying expressly in the contract that it's not a partnership. And that's the evidence uh, of, of that is it's, it's just a mere contract together for a particular transaction. It's not a partnership. So although partnerships are popular in the sense that they can arise for activity, they're unpopular because most people don't want them and they have that joint and several liability part. So again, it's one of the reasons why it's, you want to see a lawyer to look at putting your draft, your, you know, your joint venture agreement together, for example. Um, just yesterday, I got an experienced investor sending me a joint venture agreement forwarded by his you know, other person he's doing a deal with who's a realtor. Um, and, you know, the joint venture agreement uses the partnership word all over the thing. It says partner this, partner that, partnership, partner, partner, partner. And I don't think those guys really want to do that. So, you know, had they signed that and gone off into the world, I think they might have been easily seen as a partnership with all the, the, the trappings of, of that. So sole proprietorship, Tom the guy, just doing stuff, no separate person, no separate taxpayer. All my assets, liabilities are on the table. All the income from the project goes to me, no one else, just me. Right away, I can't defer it. Partnership, Tom and Jason together doing things. No separate person, no separate taxpayer. Tom and Jason responsible together against the world all of our assets at risk together. Corporation, it is a separate person, it is a separate taxpayer, and so that's the whole bloody point. And, and a lot of times, you know, despite tax treatment and despite proposed tax changes, I'm sure a lot of people will be concerned about using a corporation for real estate deals for liability purposes. Um, you know, there's a lot of I won't say misinformation, but there's a lot of uh, headlines trying to sell newspapers with respect to proposed tax changes that talk about fairness this and small business that and whether or not people have pensions and things. All that aside, the proposed tax changes, you know, currently a corporation, unless it's getting a small business deduction, a corporation already pays, you know, relatively higher tax, generally speaking, than a personal marginal rate. So the proposals don't change much in that regard. It's more about income sprinkling rules that they're proposing and, and different things like that. So again, the point I'm trying to make is tax laws will change, but tax planning, income sprinkling is important for our corporate structure and we care, investors care very much about that. But there are other reasons, liability being one of them, you know, corporately holding commercial property, especially for liability, is a big deal. So often that's probably the most popular choice we 
see Jason, but a lot of people sure are, um, uh, you know, scared or concerned about these broad sweeping proposed changes, which have very little certainty. They've talked about um, trying to be fair, not to be able to split income, um, but again, they're trying to change corporate law that goes back 50 years with the stroke of a pen. Reasonableness test that's been proposed by the government, there's nothing to it. They haven't defined what that means. Um, they say it should be income-based. It'll only touch the high-income earners. There's no income test in the proposed legislation. So, frankly, I don't know what they're talking about, and I wonder if they know what they're talking about. So we'll leave that for someone else with more knowledge. But I, I think things will change, but corporate structure will probably remain because it's a cornerstone of our, of our legal system. And there is a public policy reason and benefit to having a separate entity, a separate taxpayer, and a corporation. Again, we would not have so many beautiful Chinook malls to go and enjoy and shop in if Bob the guy had to be on title because he's not likely to risk everything in order to develop that land. So um, changes are, are coming. Never a dull moment. Um, it, it will depend, but those typically are your choices. Sole proprietor, partnership, incorporation. And keep in mind, incorporations, you might have two incorporations that form a partnership. Or Jason and Tom's incorporation might form a joint venture. You know, all of these are just tools that we may build many things with. But we usually want to look at what is your deal, what is uh, your transaction, who are you, who's getting involved, um, you know, what's going on. Particularly with joint ventures, every deal is a, a little bit different. So um, I, I have to now disclose my naivety with computer programs because I have a little hand with, with two questions popping up. I'm not sure. We'll, that we'll, we'll take care of it. Okay, <laughs> very good. Thank you, guys. Uh, so, sorry, J Jason, a long-winded answer for choices again, but, you know, putting stuff in your own name might be easier, might be easier for credits. You could use your credit applications and things like that, although from a liability perspective, usually corporations are more desirable. Typically, the bank will look for guarantees or indemnities from you if it's a corporately held mortgage anyway, so we'll, we'll mention that a little bit later, I think, but, you know, often the corporate structure is quite popular. And, you know, despite taxes, despite the formality or cost of creating a corporation, having that corporation can be comforting to an investor thinking, well, it's not me, it's that other entity, and that's nice. And if they want to bring in co-owners, whether that's, hey, my friend Jason, or my wife, or you know, my spouse, or adult children, or uh, someone they want to sell to over time, or eventually having that corporate structure gives way more options for that. We're not changing the ownership of the land. We're not dealing with financing or transfer tax or land titles or anything like that. It's all held by the corporation before and after all those maneuverings. So, from a planning perspective, estate and succession planning. There's a lot more choices there, so I think corporations will remain, you know, of, of interest to, to planners and to people for a long, long time to come. That's that's absolutely great information there. Thanks so much, um, Yark. We got some questions here. We want to throw those up. Yep. Joe. Joe, can you ask the question? You are unmuted. 
Hi, Joe, are you there? Joe's disappeared. Sorry, There's a small icon with the microphone. Just click it on it. If it's anything like your my screen, I've got a microphone emblem at the top where I click to activate the mic, Joe. Perhaps your screen has that. Okay. Uh, Try again. Joe, Joe, let's do this way. Uh, you play with the, the microphone. You should be unmuted. Otherwise, just read the uh, type of the question on, on the chat. Sounds good? What was okay, the next, uh, one, next one we got there, Yark? Yes, we have uh, a... questions, you guys. Feel free to, to ask. You know, I mean, I'm a lawyer of about 20 years, and, and you know, um, sometimes if you've done deals or had questions, you know, feel free to ask them. I'm happy to. I do files every day, all day, and, I, and you know, I'll do my best to answer any questions you have. Juan, can you, can, are you unmuted? Okay. Uh, I see the guys do you having some challenges with it so uh, there is a mic on, on the top Let side me, and yeah, yeah just Eric, I'm gonna read out uh, Juan's question if you don't mind sure it's a, go it's for a great it. question so Juan is asking uh, Thomas if uh, having a three corporation you know tier um, is right. is the best way when starting to buy houses um, or could someone start with one corporation first and then move into maybe a three tier down the road well, you can. Uh, that's a, a just a great question, you guys. And um, you know, the the three tier that type of structure, uh, for those who don't know, is is really just referring to a series of related corporations. So each corporation, whether there's one, two, three, four, five, fifty, a hundred, each corporation is a separate person, a separate taxpayer. Again, that's you know, sort of the whole point of choosing that structure. A lot of times. Um, a three tier is referring to one corporation that's like a parent or holding company. And it is really not owning land. It's not really doing anything other than um, owning shares of another company below. So one company below we might call a real estate co, for example, that will buy and own land, maybe an apartment building or rental property. Um, another corporation underneath the whole co might be an active company, a property management company, or any active business, whether it's doing consulting or landscaping, a side business, wedding photos, you know, catering business, whatever it is. Um, and the idea is that active and passive income are treated differently in tax. So usually active income is taxed a little bit lower. We'd like to separate that active income in the uh, management co um, or active co and the, keep the passive income separated to the real estate code. So that, that sort of structure is generally kind of the, the purpose of that. Separating the land from the business, from the whole code and from you for tax and liability purposes. That, that's what um, most people are wanting to do. So then the question is, well, okay, great. Um, you know, can I just get a real estate code? We'll, we'll set up one corporation and we'll call it a real estate code because after all, it's going to buy land. So, you know, real estate code, there it is. Can I do that? Um, and then add a hold code later? And the answer is, you know, sure you can, but there are considerations to be had there. Um, if you just set up a real estate code, you have the benefit of limited liability protection. 
you have the benefit of a separate taxpayer and a separate legal entity from from just doing that one corporation. So um, I often tease people and say, "You had me at hello. You you get the benefits at one." And you know, it's perfectly fine to, to to do that. The challenge is, if you want to add a hold co later, then they pawn the guy, the taxpayer. I'd have to sell my shares in the existing real estate co to the newly formed holding company, and that's a capital disposition. So when I sell those shares, they may attract capital gains. If there are gains, uh, there there will be payable. Um, and that can be an issue. So when I sell my shares of my existing real estate code to the holding company, even if I did it at a dollar, it would be deemed to be at then fair market value because I'm a related party selling it to my company, right? So that tax issue is often a prohibitive issue. If I don't have any capital gain in real estate co at the time I do that sale, at the time I add hold co, whether that's in year one or year 20, if there's no capital gain, no problem. The cost of doing the share transaction is not difficult or expensive. It's more about capital gain. On the other hand, if I sell my shares of existing real estate co in year one or year 20, whenever that is, and there's a gain related to the cost of the shares or the value of the shares of real estate co, then I could have a tax problem. So in real estate, you might think, well, that might not happen for a while. You know, real estate co buys a property for $150,000, for example. You know, maybe there's a mortgage on title, for example. I, I do, I, I sell real estate co in year one. There hasn't been much of an increase. So hey, not much of a gain, no, no problem. But it doesn't take long in a lot of markets. And you know, if you're in Vancouver or Toronto, for example. You know that could be a big deal if you were in Calgary during the heyday around here uh, you know 2007 or 6 or so that, that could be a big deal so real estate co has real estate and the value of those shares are going to go up with the value of the property even though the investor might think oh gosh I've got a big mortgage there there's not much equity anyway it's not worth much that land will appreciate based on the fair market value of, of the property, not, not your equity. So if the land is going up each year, just from fair market value alone, whether it's 2%, 5%, 20%, hey, you know, sure is nice to have that. It's going up 20% a year or, you know, 5% a year. It's 5% of the $500,000 value of the house, not the 50K of equity. So it doesn't take long before you have a tax problem. So my point here is moving things later has tax consequences and potentially additional costs. Adding hold coal later is a little like lifting the house to put the basement in. It can be done, but it might not be pretty. Okay. So as a tax planner, um, you know, as, a, as a, a lawyer who deals with tax planners or estate planners, accounts and things like that, a lot of times the very heart of the transaction is moving the hold coal in and moving those shares around to get to a, a more desirable structure for long-term use. And I mean, there is no end of planners that do that, you know, day in and day out uh, for that. So Jason, quite often, you know, adding that hold coal later is part of a bigger plan. And if you're doing it down the road, you might suffer the consequence of having to lift the house to put the basement in.
So as a result, for most investors, starting with Orco, you might pay to do that at the beginning and carry it for a while, but it's worth it as you build your portfolio. Clearly, if you're just buying a house or two for your stepmother to live in, then you might not look at much of structure for cost and things. But most investors are thinking beyond that. They don't know if they'll have five or 500 properties, but they, they know they're not just getting one or two properties. They hope to do more. And because of that, they would look at creating a whole co and we would talk about that with them, um, about this conversation. You know, if you're going to have to change later, if you're going to want to grow later, it might be quite a substantial cost. You might have to lift the house to put the basement in. Rather than that, let's talk about digging the hole today. Um, it, it can save you a lot of time, effort, and, and money. So that's just an excellent question and a very, very common question. A related question to that is to say, okay, lawyer guy, that's very great. You know, thank you. What about the rest of the three tier or that type of structure? Do we have to do it all at once? What about that? Can I, can I just do two of the companies? Can I phase it in? The answer, of course, is sure you can. Um, typically, you'd probably start with Holdco and one other company to do some deals um, and then look at creating that, that second company, whether it's Management Co. or another real estate co. That's an approach that some people take. Adding another real estate company or adding a management company, corporation, adding that later is not lifting the house. There's no problem with doing that. You could do it at any time. There's no tax consequences, no problem. So the other thing I should mention is adding a hold co later, even if there's no capital gain, no problem, whenever you're planning to do it. If there is a capital gain, you can always pay it, be done with it. I mean, the tax man will get their taxes, whether it's now or later, the taxes will be paid. You may choose to pay those capital gains and just be done with it. Or you could do something called a rollover, and there are a few types that you can defer, not avoid that capital gain. So in other words, the gain will be paid later, you know, at some point in the future, but you won't have to deal with it now. That rollover will usually involve an accountant and lawyer and appraisals and things like that. So there's a bit of a cost to it, um, but it's a very popular maneuver to be able to do that. And again, that's part of a, a planner's um, approach is to talk to you about that when you might want to do it and could we use a look at a rollover and these are, again, just tools in our toolbox to talk about. So changing things later has tax consequences, potential extra costs that we would like to look at it and talk about it. Certainly doing it sooner, um, you know, even from the start, creating a hold co and, and another tier or creating a hold co and, and you know, a three tier uh, early days is common where you hope to get a bit of volume in the coming you know year or two or so so if you're looking at getting three or four or five doors in the next year or two or so then you'd probably wish to think about more structure the hopes of doing those those deals so that's that's pretty much um you know the answer to that and, and again that's an, an excellent question okay uh so you were mentioning something about uh, joint ventures. Would you mind just elaborating more what exactly the joint venture is and what kind of uh, what you should consider by structuring joint ventures? That's many questions are being asked. 
Yeah, thanks, Yerk. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, joint ventures are, I think, one of the more popular topics for real estate investors. They come up all the time, and there's a real misunderstanding about it. People say, well, we're going to do a JV or you know, a joint venture agreement, and they don't really understand the, the potential legal relationships or consequences of that. So most people, when we say a joint venture, is it's not really any particular legal structure. A joint venture is usually just a form of ownership that might take many forms. Um, so it, it isn't a particular model. It's more of a relationship quite, quite often. But um, it's typically a relationship or two or more people in, a, in a, a venture to do a particular project. So here's where I would make a key distinction is that a joint venture is usually expressly, specifically, not a partnership because again a partnership in law has that legal relationship the legal responsibility to each other as partners as joint and several liability and personal liability these can have uh, disastrous consequences in dealing with with other people and third parties or sort of co-owners or partners that that's a problem so a partnership has advantages but it's it's sort of a a tool with sharp edges you'll, you'll choose it carefully and, and, and you know, for a specific reason, most people don't want to um, do a partnership in most cases. So a joint venture then is typically a uh, agreement between the venturers, that's two or more people, that is expressly not a partnership to do a particular project. So Tom and Yerick will buy a house, fix it and rent it, or fix it and sell it. Um, the city of Calgary as an entity and the province of Alberta as an entity will build a highway. You know, that's a joint venture too. So it's usually not about co-owning a corporation where we'll co-own a corporation to live its life and it'll do whatever we wish it to over the years. A joint venture is more about a particular project or, or endeavor. And typically in a joint venture, we'd want to have a written agreement like all forms of co-ownership, if we're doing shareholder agreements or you know both people being on title or things, in a joint venture, it's a co-ownership of the venture. Often only one person is on title or a few people are on title and others are not. So the joint venture contract is more uh, important to spell out the relationship of all of us as co-owners. So we usually wanna have a joint venture contract that deals with all elements of the venture and it's wise to have a written agreement to do that. The typical joint venture agreement is going to talk about um, you know who the parties are, who the venturers are, um, their roles, responsibilities, um, their ability to vote or be participating in decisions. Maybe a committee will be set up for, for different decisions. Um, it could talk about the percentage interest. So Tom and Yurik as joint ventures um, maybe 50-50 or 80-20, our percentage of ownership and responsibility to the venture would be would be set out. It could deal with uh, cash calls. Um, you know, so Tom, Yurik, and Jason enter into a joint venture to buy a house and rent it. We do that. We spell out it's you know 60 to Yurik, 20 to Tom, 20 to Jason. Yurik puts in money. Yurik's on title, Tom and Jason are not, but we have an interest in the property. All of this is in our joint venture contract. 
Then we have cash call provisions. Guess what? We need a new roof. It's $20,000. Tom doesn't want to pay. He wants to go to Disneyland instead. Well, <laughs> your and Jason might be able to require Tom to pay or have some punitive measure like I can no longer vote or my interest can be bought out at fair market value or some penalty amount and if I don't pay that cash call. So these types of provisions we would look at and consider depending on the circumstances. If it's just Tom and Yerick 50-50, we sort of have to agree to do anything. We might be a little less concerned about those other complexities. But if it's Tom, Yerick, Jason, Bob, Sally, you know, Lisa, Sarah, all these different people, all these different strangers, a bunch of money at a commercial property, we might get extremely complicated and, and robust with our provisions about these different things. So, um, you know, these are the types of things we worry about on a joint venture contract. Naming the parties, of course, is key, whether it's Tom Thurmeyer, the person, or it's um, Happy Real Estate Investments, Inc. You know, who the venturers are matters from a legal and tax perspective. We would typically also talk about the purpose of the venture to um, buy or sell a property, to you know, rent a property, to fix it. Um, sometimes joint ventures I'm seeing more and more of these days are dealing with um, uh, developing land. So we've got people that are buying bare land or an old house. Their choice is then to knock it down and subdivide the land and put up a few infills. Um, the joint venture contract would deal with some of the land development issues like financing, raising capital, um, land use applications and, and the land use bylaws and things like that. So the, those joint ventures might be more pointed towards development rather than just ownership and, and rental. Um, so usually that joint venture contract is going to spell out all of those elements it would be a written agreement, hopefully done by a lawyer, and you know that you understand it is the deal. And this is a great example of saying, look, you guys, there's all kinds of stuff on the internet. You can go to hotdocs.com.whatever and get all kinds of agreements. Half of them are from Australia or UK or the US or you know Manitoba or different jurisdictions. You know, there's a problem. The other problem is you know they may not be really very specific as to what your deal is. So using standard form agreements is very, very dangerous. And again, I see them all the time. Just yesterday, I've got one uh, from experienced investors who now when they actually sit down and read this, they realize, you know, this agreement doesn't say really anything at all what we're doing. So we better, you know, we better get it dealt with. And again, the lawyer is going to create that. So that written contract is, is very important. So when we talk about doing a joint venture agreement then, you know, usually again the lawyer is going to draft it and you know, someone like myself, a real estate lawyer of almost 20 years, uh, drafts these things regularly. And we know the questions to ask and to talk about who's doing what and what's going on and they're going to create that joint venture contract. Uh, we've got lots of precedents to start from so we're going to go through that and create the contract that's going to create the contractual rights amongst the venturers and talk about any personal remedies between the venturers. So not just dealing with the land, but also the venturers as co-owners. So for example, we might be creating duties to act in good faith or to act reasonably uh, and making, you know, time is of the essence and things. Uh, we might appoint different duties about 
who's overseeing construction or who's overseeing the rent, um, you know, who's contributing what money, uh, all these kinds of things will be spelled out. We might also lay out indemnity provisions that talks about, okay, well, if Jason is the venturer who is overseeing the property on behalf of us, I mean, Tom, Eric, and Jason all are on a committee. We all must vote. But if we vote to buy the place and fix it and we vote to rent it to that person on those terms, we might compel Jason to deal with that. And maybe he's paid for his time or maybe he's not. Maybe that's why he gets a percentage of the ventures because he's managing that while Tom and Eric are not. And Tom and Eric are contributing money or the land for our percentage of the venture. So Eric will be off dealing with that. Well, we might have indemnities saying, well, so long as he acted in the best interest and in good faith, if some tenant sues him or he has a problem, well, the venture will take care of him. You know, those types of clauses can be important. Probably one of the more important clauses, though, is who's on title. So, you know, another venture I had the other day, two ventures want to get together and do it. And I'll use you guys as examples. I'll pick on you two because you're kind enough to be here. Tom and Yerick are going to do a venture. I'm sorry, Jason and Yerick are going to do a venture. Jason's going to set up a venture, uh, a corporation. So Jason Co., Yerick is not. Yerick is going to be the guy to get the title, to be the one on title acquiring the property. Um, but he wants to use a separate company to do that. So now we have a joint venture contract between Yerick personally, between Jason Co., and the title's going in Eurico, who's not a venture. Well, that's a problem. That, that's a terrible way to go about it because now you guys have signed a joint venture contract with a person. You know, the person on title is not a party to the joint venture contract. Okay. And that's actually an actual example that happened, you know, this week in dealing with people. They've already signed the deal, the, the real estate transactions closing, the mortgage is in place. What a mess. So they have to undo all that and, and fix it. And luckily, everyone gets along and they will undo and fix that. But can you imagine a joint venture contract between Yerick and Jason Co. are the only parties that have privity to that contract that could sue or be sued or enforce it or deal with it. And neither one of those entities owns the land. What a gong show. You know, that, that's a problem. So who is on title? You know, one of the ventures typically uh, is on title. Most often, one or more of the ventures are not on title. And whether or not they have an interest in the land is a key consideration. So in Alberta, Yerick's buying the title. He's going on title. He's buying the property. Tom and Jason are doing a joint venture. We're off-title ventures. We must make sure that our joint venture agreement creates an interest in the land for Tom and Jason and grants us a, a charge, an equitable interest in the property that Tom and Jason can register caveat on title. If Yurik dies or sells the land, Tom and Jason are going to have a problem unless they've got a caveat on title. Maybe Yurik just sells the property to run away and go to Vegas or go on one of his, his trips. Well, Tom and Jason could sue him if we could find him, but that's not going to happen if we have a caveat. So how that joint venture is created and set up is absolutely critical. And registering a caveat at land titles 
is something that Tom and Jason, I'm sure, would want to do. But again, our joint venture contract would want to talk about us postponing that caveat to allow for any mortgage financing, for example, um, to be subordinate to any lender for financial charge for the purpose of the venture. Otherwise, we might have you know, a further problem down the road. So there's lots of issues there that the real estate lawyer is going to be looking at to make sure that you're protected, especially if you're the off-title guy. Um, you know, and that could be an issue. And there's lots of people that think they'll sort of throw some money at the deal, get in and, 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 and be the off-title person, and it'll be okay. And then, you know, something happens. Maybe the person just dies, you know. That happens, and, and all of a sudden there's a, a serious problem. So in a joint venture contract, when we're looking at that, we're spelling out who's doing what, who's contributing what, um, you know, their roles and responsibilities, who's on title, who isn't. Um, another example might be uh, to do with non-competition provisions. So, for example, we might go as far as to say, well, the three of us are going to do a joint venture to buy, fix, and, and you know, flip or sell um, some infill properties in central Calgary. We might want to say, you know, as venturers, we agree not to, to compete in that area, in that neighborhood, maybe a radius of one kilometer or five kilometers in southwest Calgary or whatever we negotiate. But we might want to um, protect our market share that way and, and do that. It's a little less common in real estate joint ventures to see that, but it does come up, especially in you know commercial topics. It, it can come up. So non-competition provisions, um, you know, non-disclosure, confidentiality provisions can come up in a joint venture. Certainly, decision making is a key element of joint ventures. Great example of Jason, Yurik, and Tom. We're all 33 and a third percent, I guess, equal owners of the venture, even though Yurik's on title and Tom and Jason aren't. But we've got a protection at land titles. Who decides when to buy the property? At what price? Who decides to fix the roof? What about a budget for that? What about uh, we fixed it and we want to rent it? What are the rental terms that we're willing to accept? The the uh, the tenant, the term of a, the lease, the rental of it. If we choose to sell. What should we list it at? If someone makes an offer, should we accept it? At what price should we accept? You know, all of those are fundamental decisions about that. So our joint venture contract is going to spell out those decision-making criteria. And it might be as something as simple as saying, Jason, Eric, and Tom are all, our, are all on the committee with equal votes. You know, there, that's simple. So I guess because there's three guys we might say a regular resolution is simple majority, 51%. Yerrick and Jason, done. Although we might have certain things that are so important, they might require a special majority, which in this case would be, I guess, all three people. If we said special majority is you know, more than two-thirds, well, that's, that's the three guys. We might go on to say some decisions are so important, they just require unanimous consent, period. But if it's four people, a special resolution at two-thirds means three out of the four could decide. But with back to just the three of us, we might decide something is so important it requires a special or unanimous, which is basically the same thing in our case. 
But we'd look at that. What are decisions like that? Well, selling the property, entering into an expenditure more than blank dollars, whether that's 2,000 or 20,000 or 2 million, fixing the property, listing the property, renting the property, um, somebody buying in or out of the venture. You know, these distribution of, of cash, um, you know, these sorts of things might require a unanimous decision. You might say, look, that's so important. I don't want you two to vote me off the island and, and rule the day. Those are so important. We all have to agree. But on the other hand, we might have things like, well, say the cash call. Maybe we've got such a problem that if two out of the three guys decide, we should be able to require that the ventures contribute money to deal with it rather than have a problem where Thurmeyer has gone off to Disneyland and, and the property needs a new roof. So, you know, decision-making, cash call, I mean, these are fundamental issues to look at. And if anyone looks at corporations or likes to watch Dragon's Den and, and wonder why Kevin O'Leary always wants, you know, 51% or whatever, it's because it's control of the board. It's decision-making power. And the same is with respect to joint venture. We're talking about co-ownership here, co-ownership of the venture sharing the venture's assets, the property, the land, sharing the expenses, sharing the control, ownership, and decisions. So we really want to deal with that. Our joint venture contract is going to spell that out. It's going to spell out our percentage interests, whether it's 33 and a third for each of the three of us, or Yarek has 60 and Jason and Tom each have 20, or whatever it is. That percentage interest in a joint venture is often dealing with our share of profits, but also liabilities and costs. So, hey, you're a 60% guy. Congratulations, you get 60% of the profit. But I'm sorry to tell you, we need a new roof. And you, I guess you'll be paying 60% of that because you're 60% owner, right? So get out your checkbook. So in a joint venture, typically, that percentage interest is going to dictate who owns what, who pays what, who, who gets what. It's going to spell out all those other things. In addition to that, we probably deal with initial contributions, sort of back to the original question about, well, you know, what should we do if we're thinking about putting a venture together? What should the three of us do? I mean, we've got Jason. He's smart. He's good with tools. He's got time. We've got Eric. He's got a bit of cash. We've got Tom. I don't know. Who knows what that guy does? But we want to get a venture together. Okay. Who's going to contribute what? Well, maybe Yerrick will have the deposit. In order to acquire the property, Yerrick had to put down $50,000. What about that? Well, we need to we need to deal with that. So we might say that Yerrick's deposit is an initial contribution to be paid back, you know, as we specified. Maybe the first time any money comes out beyond normal operating costs, Yerrick gets paid back before anyone else. Or Yurik might be willing to agree to be paid upon sale of the property or maybe refinancing the property. So we would talk about that and, and set that out. Yurik might want percentage interest on his capital contribution. Maybe he's got the 50 grand on a line of credit and he's paying 7%. Well, the venture might agree to pay his financing costs to having that $50,000. So initial contributions, how they're dealt with, would be addressed. And initial contributions isn't just cash and Yurik's deposit to acquire the land or maybe cash from Yurik to fix the property. Initial contributions might also be 
Jason and his time. Jason is going to contribute time and effort to swing a hammer and physically fix and work on the property. Or maybe just to oversee that. Maybe to hire contractors, to place tenants, to drive around town getting supplies from Rona and Home Depot. So maybe Jason will be paid an hourly wage. $10 or $20 or $50 or whatever the committee decides. Or maybe he won't be because that's what he's doing for his contribution. So again, we need to spell all this out. Every deal is different. There's no magic solution. Some document downloaded from some silly web page is not likely to be able to know what you guys are thinking. And that's the reality of it. We have to look at drafting something to affect your, your deal. Often what happens is you'll have somebody on title who has the credit and the deposit, maybe Europe, for example, some party who's got more time, expertise, capacity to supervise or oversee, like Jason, in this case. And, you know, those will be spelled out from the start. We might even have finder fees if one venture is bringing another or finding a property or finding tenants. You know, we might have reward mechanisms like that. But generally, the, the skills or obligations are split out to the parties. And sometimes then we get into, well, okay, the committee and who's keeping books. And, you know, if we had Yerick, his wife, and Jason as the three joint venturers, we might say, well, on the committee, the management committee who votes and decides things, Yerick and his wife only get one vote. And Jason gets one vote. So Jason can't be voted off the island would be one way to do it. So Jason still has 50%. Yerick and his spouse share 50%. But the vote is still split by the percentage. Again, there's different ways to, to look at that. Because really, Yerick and his spouse are sort of one unit that way. Um, or an alternative is to say, well, we'll just identify key decisions that requires unanimous consent. Again, selling the property, listing it, you know, buying it, spending money, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it, these kinds of things that we'd look at. And I think the other thing, too, is, is to deal with revenues and expenses from, from a joint venture. Um, you know, many joint ventures have surprises. Even if they're buying a property and renting it, they might have repairs needed. Certainly, if you're doing a flip and sell, you know, you're going to fix and flip it. Um, you know, unexpected construction costs, delays, materials unavailable, have to get different different kinds of materials at a different cost, or uh, labor cost is up, or opening up the walls and you find some problem, a knob and tube wiring that needs to be replaced, and it's an additional $20,000 or something like that. You know, all of these things can happen. So we often look to how will the revenue and expenses be applied. Typically, it's towards normal operating costs like any financing, principal, interest, any insurance, um, you know, things like that. And then any leftover will build up sort of a rainy day fund, maybe with excess cash being pulled out uh, periodically to the ventures by their pro rata share. So how revenue is dealt with is usually covered. And same with expenses. And expenses might be dealt with, um, you know, uh, periodically. From, from our cash rainy day fund, but if we're short, we might have cash call provisions that are that are in there dealing with uh, with the shortage. And I think finally, 
one of the most common provisions for joint venture is is what about death, divorce, bankruptcy, you know, disability? That's probably the most common questions. People say, well, what happens if we can't get along? Or I hate that guy and I want out. What happens if Tom dies or Jason gets divorced and you know his ex-wife gets an interest in the joint venture? You know, all of these sort of deemed disposition clauses are a concern. If I die, get divorced, I go bankrupt, I have a trustee or receiver take an interest in all my assets, Yurik and Jason have a very serious problem now. They are having to deal with some unwanted third party. We might contemplate in our joint venture agreement where there's a right to buy me out, an option to buy me or my unwanted successor out. To be fair, maybe Jason and Yurik could buy me out at then fair market value. To be fair, they're not trying to uh, you know, be uh, unfair, but they don't want to be stuck in business with my unwanted successor. So that sort of provision is absolutely critical. And it might talk about buy and sell clauses or shotgun clauses, rights of first refusal or piggyback drag along clauses, meaning if the two of you want to sell out, then I have to also agree to sell or, you know, all this kind of stuff. So deemed disposition, death, divorce, bankruptcy, uh, you know, those are, are very important clauses that we'd often look at in, in, in joint ventures. So. That's probably the longest answer you guys have ever had to a question, I'm sure. And I, I deserve a, a prize for that. <laughs> so we have a Mark on, online. Mark, can you can you say something? Are you? Hello. Hi, Mark. Yes, Mark. Hello, everyone. Thanks, Thomas, for uh, the presentation. Yeah, so, no worries. Congratulations for uh, managing to get online with your microphone. You win. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, everyone needs to install something uh, on their Chrome browser. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah it, it, that's right. Now that you mention it, there is a, a little app that you install yeah. um, that goes through, and I think the program prompts you to do that. So you'd probably say yes if you wanted yeah. to do that. For sure. Anyways, um, so uh, here's my question. I am pretty new to uh, real estate investing. I don't have... Uh, holding or, or corporation, right, or anything, but uh, what are the ways that I could uh, minimize my liabilities? Because I think corporation deals with uh, protecting uh, someone else's liabilities. Well, it, it yeah, it does. You're right, Mark. So you know that having the corporation, um, you know, is a separate person, a separate taxpayer. And it minimizes liabilities from you in the sense that whatever the corporation does is its own business. So it's sort of like saying, hey, I've got shares in Husky Oil or Apple. You know, the new iPhones aren't selling so well. Maybe the company has banking problems or business expense problems. That's not going to affect you personally. You're just a shareholder, right? So the same, same sort of thing here with real estate is if it's a revenue property or, you know, commercial property, if it's held by the corporation, then you're not the one on title, you're not the one on the mortgage, you're not responsible for the corporation. You don't stand in the shoes of the corporation. Even if you've entered into a guarantee where you've promised to pay the debt of another person, you've promised to pay the bank for the mortgage, 
you're on for the mortgage, but you do not stand in the shoes of the corporation as against the world. You're not on to any creditors of the corporation, any tenants of the corporation or anything like that. You're not on for that as a shareholder. Now, if you're a director or officer of the corporation, you might have some personal liability for tax of the corporation. As a director, you have to make sure the corporation files taxes. But again, that's you know different. That's something else. So, you know, your question is a good one is to say, well, you know, the corporation, how do I minimize how do I minimize my liabilities or maximize my protection? Well, the corporation is usually used for the purposes of doing transactions or owning property. Um, it, it's not, you know, if you don't really have any assets, then a corporation may not really be useful. A corporation is sort of like a vessel or a bowl, you know, something you, you put something in to, to, to protect it and to protect you from it is, is the thinking. But that said, from an asset protection standpoint, Mark, there are lots of ways to protect yourself, um, generally speaking. So if you were to look at the notions of a family trust, which is another mechanism to have activity or assets held through the trust, it could protect you from liability. Um, but, you know, I want to be clear to, I want to be careful to answer your question well, Mark, as if you don't have any properties, you're not doing transactions, there's not much of a concern. Okay. Sure. Yes. So if, you're, if your question is, well, I'm just getting started and I want to think about like, you know, should, when should I add structure? Then that's kind of a little bit of a different question. And that one sort of it, we're back to the lifting the house issue. So if you said, well, look, Tom, I'm just getting started. I want to do a deal. I want to buy a property and rent it and see how it goes. Well, you might not, you know, you might not do a corporate structure Then you might just hold it in your own name for that one deal. The advantage is it's easy and cheap. You don't have to set up the company. It might be a little easier to find credit in your own name because, you know, you exist and things like that and have a job and things. Um, the disadvantage is it's just you. There is no separate person to protect you. There's liability concerns. You can't income split the property, money from the property. If the property has income, it's to you, only you not your spouse or any adult children or you know anyone else it's to you there's no other person and it's to you now not later so there is no deferral of the income so you'll have rental income on your personal tax return whether you like it or not and you might think ah oh, crap that's you know I'm just gonna add to my tax bill but you know that that's the way it works so to change it later is having that lifting the house issue where you'll have to sell the property to a real estate co later and that'll be a capital disposition capital gains will be you know deemed to apply if, if applicable you'll be imputed income and taxed you know you bought the house at 500 held it in your own name for a while transferred to your company for a dollar but it's now worth 550 you've got a fifty thousand dollar gain there you will be imputed income of 50 grand and taxed on it accordingly. So, you know, moving it around later is difficult. So, for those investors, Mark, that are saying, I don't know how much I'm going to get into this. I might just do a property or two. We'll see. They might start in their own name and go from there, particularly if they don't intend to hold the property for a long time. But most investors I see are 
people that saying, look, I don't know if I'm going to have five or 50 properties, but I do know I'm not just trying to get a house or two here. I want to try build a bit of a portfolio. And I don't know if it's going to be a year or two years or three years, but again, I'm, I'm undertaking my time, effort and resources to do it. So I'm going to look at at least starting that type of structure, that three tier, or that type of structure. I might look at creating the beginning of it. It'll be a simple real estate co or a hold co in a real estate co and I'll start there and, and go from there. And so we would talk all about that with you about what do you hope to do? Are you married? Do you have kids? Where do you, where are you going to do your deals? What kind of deals are you going to do? You know, and, and we'd sort of talk about that because changing it later again has tax consequences and, and potential costs. Selling the house from Mark the guy to Mark's real estate co will breach your financing breach the mortgage. So you will either have to refinance or have the company assume your mortgage, which in Alberta is possible, but not possible in a lot of other provinces. Again, that might not be a big deal. Maybe the mortgage is up anyway, and you could sort of move the property at a time when you were refinancing in any event. But you know that it's good to know that mark in advance. If you buy a house and want to move it to your company later, you'll have land titles costs to change the title, a lawyer to deal with that, which those things aren't very expensive. In Alberta, it's maybe 150 for land titles, three, four, five hundred bucks for lawyer to take care of that. Although if it's a different province, land titles could be transfer tax, like BC. So it might not be, you know, $150 or $300 government fee, it might be $3,000 or $10,000 government fee. So land titles, lawyer, bank, lender, mortgage, as well as CRA, capital gains. So moving land around, we have to look at all those features. Land titles, the lawyer, the lender, the tax man, is it going to be worth it to move it later? And maybe the answer is no, I'm going to sell it soon anyway, or no, I'll just keep it in my own name and bolster my insurance and learn for the future. Maybe the answer is, oh, there's no gain right now. I got to refinance anyway. I hope to hold it for a while. I think I'll move it. You know, we have to look at those factors for each property, but the point I'm trying to impress upon you is these types of decisions about structuring for asset protection is partly to do with what we are looking at now. But it's also partly to do with what we hope to be dealing with in the future, because moving stuff around later has tax consequences and costs money. So if you want to sit inside this weekend because it's snowing and watch Netflix and have popcorn, you might want to decide to get the bowl for your popcorn in advance. Right? Same kind of deal here. With structuring, if you're looking at doing deals in the next year or two or so, we'd be looking at structure. And I keep saying the next year or two or so, and I'll speak to that is, if I create a corporation or whatever structure I look at, but let's say I create a corporation, if I create it today, I'll pay to create it. I'll have, have to, you know, I, I won't buy the new iPad, I guess I'll pay to create the corporation today. If I create the corporation in five years, I'll pay then. Whenever I create the corporation, I'll, I'll have to pay. That's not really the concern that most investors are concerned about. It's usually the cost that most investors are concerned about is the carrying cost of incorporation. 
So if I create a corporation today, it won't do a tax return for 15 to 18 months from today, and then not for another year and another year thereafter. So a corporation and the carrying cost of keeping its tax return, it's not like a piece of fruit that goes bad in a week. You're not buying a, a bag of bananas at Costco thinking, geez, can I finish all those in the next week? It's more about, will I use this corporation in the next year or two or so? Right? Not in the next week or two or so. Because once I set it up, I won't have any carrying cost really for the next year and a half to, you know, and every year thereafter. So for most investors, they're looking at structuring in anticipation of doing some deals in the next year or so. They want to start the structure to start their tax history, to start their relationship with their lawyer and accountant. If they're doing any offers on properties, having real estate code in existence to make the offer is best practice because then it's not you on the offer, it's real estate code. And for the purposes of financing and dealing with the bank, it is a lot easier and smoother for Happy Real Estate Inc. to be the one on the purchase contract and on the mortgage application rather than Tom and or assigns, maybe he'll set up a corporation later. That can confuse and delay financing approvals and that whole process. So nobody wants to be wasteful, but if you're at the point of looking at properties, dealing with vendors, making offers on properties, you're probably ready to have your real estate co set up for the purposes of making that offer, right? So you know, that's the time to, to get going. So I, I hope I've answered your question, Mark. I've kind of- Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, no worries. I mean, that's, you know, you raise a really popular concern is that um, hey, lawyer guy, if I set up, what should I set up and when should I do it? You know, those are those are, are good questions. And the, it's the when part is the structure we tend to think of in the next, you know, in terms of the next year or two or so, not in terms of the next day or the next month or so, right? Because it's the carrying cost is really a, an annual basis. And even, you know, the cost of corporate tax returns varies widely. It might not be that much if there's little or no activity. You might do it yourself if there's little or no activity. But generally speaking, a corporate tax return is more involved than a personal return. It's not $29 at H&R Block. It can be three, four, five hundred bucks for a basic return. If it's a small business with employees, it might be two grand a year another accountant would charge for a small business a corporate tax return. I would ask you to consider what Microsoft you know, Incorporated pays for their corporate tax return each year. What do you think, folks? I'm going to guess probably millions of dollars. So that corporate tax return is quite expensive. So again, it depends. It's a little bit like asking how much for a car, Pontiac or Mercedes. You know, it's going to be a different answer. So the corporate tax return, generally speaking, a hold co would usually have little or no activity. It would probably be fairly minimal. A real estate co, if it has one property, well, I guess it'll have 12 rental checks and maybe a annual repair or something. It might be fairly straightforward. But the point is nobody wants to be wasteful. You don't want to create a bunch of corporations, have a bunch of corporate tax returns to be done, and no activity for a period of several years. Then you'll be disappointed in yourself, I think, because you'll be spending money on tax returns. So on the other hand, though, if you're looking at doing deals in the next year or two, you probably want to get set up at least to, to start the phase in of the structure. We'd talk about that. We would speak about what it is you might want to do and when, 
So you're not going to have to move things later and have those additional costs. And again, the moment we're dealing with land, it's land titles, lawyer, lender, taxman, every deal. And we look at, you know, that house over there, that pink one. Do I want to sell it? Do I want to keep it? When's the mortgage up? Is there a gain on that one? Who's on title? Do I want to change that? In what province is it in? Is there a transfer tax? All of those factors we're going to look at and talk about when we say, hey, lawyer guy, I've got a property in my own name. I want to move it. Let's talk about it. Well, that's the conversation we're going to have. So it's a great question, Mark. And I, I think from an asset protection standpoint, understanding that time is your friend and moving things at the last minute is detrimental to your asset plan. The idea that you know, you're restructuring for the purposes of trying to defeat creditors is going to severely harm you. The idea of moving things around costs money and has tax consequences. All these reasons are why investors care about asset protection and why they want to look at structure now, not later. Because the world is full of people who are phoning their lawyers and accountants and saying, gosh, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into. I started doing this and now I want to change and now I want to do this. And oh my goodness, what do I do? You know, and, and the conversation usually is, well, put on your Sunday sweater and get out your checkbook and come into my office. We'll talk about it for hours. Mm -hmm. you know, we'll, we'll create a plan and it, it'll, it'll be expensive to do. And tax planners and things, you know, they, they are very much effective and worth their weight in, in savings but you know those plans are detailed it often is not as easy as a quick call they have to look at all kinds of things and appraisals can be involved and third-party costs and you know all kinds of things like that so um, planning for the future can save you a lot of money basically so thanks mark appreciate it thank you yeah you bet Thanks so much there, Tom. All right, well, we've got about 10 minutes here left. And I got a question that came from Joe that I'm going to ask you. Yeah. It's, it says, as you need to personally guarantee your finances in your corporation, right. what, are the, what, are, what are the criteria in order to acquire financing solely on a corporation? And also, does the liability default to the individual that, is, that has to guarantee the financing despite being in a corporation? Yeah, great question. So the the uh, qualification, uh, well, let's talk about guarantees is the promise to pay the debt of another person. Okay, so this is very common where Tom, the real estate investor, sets up a bit of a structure, you know, has a real estate co, for example, maybe a, a holding co as well. Real estate co, the person, the taxpayer, is going to buy land and go on title, and it's the one on the mortgage because, you know, only the landowner can grant a mortgage. So real estate co is on the mortgage application. But the bank says, hey, we'd love to do the deal. They're just It's a brand new entity. We, we want a guarantee from Tom. So that's something that I would actively do that would erode or, or you know, limit my limited liability protection. I'm signing on to be personally responsible. I'm promising to pay the debt of the corporation personally. But again, I do not stand in the shoes of real estate co. I'm only on with respect to the, the mortgage. And banks aren't stupid. The loan to value is such that there's equity there. They would typically go after the land first. I think generally speaking, that guarantee is, is pretty much, you know, a safe bet, um, you know, versus guaranteeing the debt of an, an active business, you know, a, a corner store or something. It's backed up by the land and the banks bloody well know that. Um, 
For me, being on the guarantee, though, the concern is that the land value plummets. The, the mortgage exceeds the value of the property for whatever reason. Tenants don't look after the property. It gets wrecked or the market takes a bad turn. All of a sudden, I'm on the hook. How do I qualify for just a corporate mortgage? Again, it's a bit more of a, of a mortgage broker lender sort of issue. But to be fair, Jason, it, you know, it'll depend on the deal. It'll depend on the party. Um, every deal is different and every lender has lending criteria they look at. A lot of them are similar, you know, debt servicing ratio, loan to value ratios, all those things are looking at it. So, you know, going higher than 80% loan to value, well, will be a, a, an insured mortgage and they'll be looking for that and, and they tend to often want to get a personal guarantee on those. So unfortunately, I can't sort of give you any criteria other than what's available on the internet of what lenders, you know, criteria are. Uh, loan to value, debt servicing come to mind and the web pages are, are full of those sorts of things. But the helpful part I think I can give you is to say that if it's a new corporation with no activity, no assets, no income, it's more likely they'll be looking for a guarantee, period. If a corporation has assets, income, things like that, they will, uh, lenders will generally then look to its history and look to its relationship with that entity in order to do the deal. But that said, lenders, generally speaking, are not interested in having a real estate code that also runs an active business. So to use some unfortunate terminology here, lenders usually want real estate code to be a holding code. Now, when I say that, I don't mean a holding code that owns other companies. I'm not talking about our parent hold code. I am talking about the bank typically doesn't want real estate code to also run a business. They only want it to be a holding code. Again, just a name, we could call it Happy Co, Sad Co. The bank only wants real estate code to be a holding corporation in the sense that it only owns that real estate. It does not also run an active business. That's all that they mean when they say holding code in that regard. So the bank is looking at real estate code and saying it just owns the land. If it has a history with it, if it has other land, it's probably going to be less likely for guarantees. If there's a, a small mortgage, if the building's worth $1.5 and you want a $40,000 mortgage, less likely for a guarantee, right? The bank yeah, does not want that, right? Exactly. The bank does not want an active business. It changes the risk profile. If Real Estate Co. is getting a mortgage and dealing with a revenue property, but also runs a corner store with employees and staff, well, you know, that changes the lending profile. Banks not tend to want that. So, you know, there's that. So generally, Jason, you know, guarantees are asked for when there's no history, there's no assets, you know, that sort of thing. Should Tom, the investor, grant a guarantee? Well, you don't have to. I can look around. I'm sure I'll find a lender who doesn't want a guarantee. But what will that other lender want instead? Higher interest for the risk. So most of the lenders, I might, you know, mainstream main lenders have similar lending criteria where I would provide the guarantee, you know, in exchange for a more favorable rate of interest. That is a promise to pay the debt of another person. I am now personally on the hook to pay the debt. But again, with real estate, it's backed up by the land. So it's sort of less likely they're going to go after me because they just foreclose on the property. 
But that second part of the question is a good one. Let's say Tom and Jason have real estate code and it buys the property and Tom and Jason sign guarantees. Those guarantees will almost always be joint and several, joint together, several, separately or apart. Tom and Jason separately or together responsible. So if the bank, the guarantee will provide that the bank could go after Tom or Jason. It could go after Jason for the whole amount. It doesn't even have to go after corporation first. It doesn't have to go after Tom first. It can just go after whoever it wishes to first. It could get the whole amount from Jason and Jason would be thinking, well, hey, wait a minute, Thurmeyer owes some here. He'd, he'd be left to pursue me. The bank would have got from Jason because they were able to. So most guarantees are worded such that they're joint in several and they don't even have to provide a notice of default. They don't have to attempt to try realize from the property first. You know, they're free to do whatever they want, whatever they can to recover their money. So if you really read a guarantee, and you know, I do, um, it, it'll provide for that. So in Alberta, luckily, you have to see a lawyer for a guarantee to be valid, and the lawyer's going to explain that you know, to you. So providing the guarantee is somewhat comforting in real estate because it's backed up by the land. But it is a personal promise to pay the debt of the corporation. And if there's a shortfall, or if there's some problem with the property, you might find the bank's coming after you. And, and that's what the guarantee is all about. There's an additional issue I, I'd mentioned too is Tom and Jason guarantee real estate co and the debt for the property. Tom and Jason then sell real estate co, not the property, real estate co. We sold it to Europe. He wanted to take the company. It was easier to sell the corporation. Maybe it was more favorable for tax or, you know, it was, we just sold the corporation because we wanted to. Well, all of a sudden, Tom and Jason are still on for the guarantee. Yurik now runs the company. Maybe he causes it to get more debt or he causes the company to fail. Tom and Jason are still getting sued. That's a problem. So remember, if you sign guarantees, remember that you've signed them. You want to be careful that we know what we've signed. Tom and Jason may not choose to sell the company, the corporation, real estate both, unless we get released from our guarantee. Or at the very minimum, we might require Yurik to indemnify us for any problem that we have. If the bank comes after us on the guarantee, we might want an indemnity from Yurik, an ability to sue him, although that may not be worth very much. If the bank couldn't get any money from him and they had to come after Tom and Jason, chances are Tom and Jason can't get anything from Yurik either. You can't get blood from a stone. So signing a guarantee is important because you are eroding or limiting your limited liability protection of the corporation. It's a lingering effect because it's a lot there as long as the guarantee is there. It's almost always joint in several when there's you know two or more. It's almost always limited or unlimited. Guess which one the bank likes? Unlimited. So if the debt goes up, so does your exposure. Jason and I control real estate co. Maybe that's not a concern. But if we sold real estate co to Europe and he cranks up the debt, well, our guarantee follows with it. So that is a concern. So, you know, how to get the bank to do a deal without a guarantee? Well, you know, shop around. If you are got a new company with no assets, 
no history with the bank. They're looking for a guarantee. You might find you have to do the guarantee to get the rate of interest. You might be comforted by the fact that it's backed up by the land, but you might try avoid the guarantee or limit the guarantee by value or time. You could negotiate to limit the guarantee to 25,000 or 50,000. You could try limit the guarantee for the first year or something like that, try and negotiate that. You could also offer the lender other security. You could say, well, I've got some bare land over here that I, I graze for cows. I'll grant you a mortgage in that in, in addition to the property. So you could grant security and assets, you know, any other security you might have. But in the reality is a lot of real estate investors are going to do the guarantee for the bank and you know, they'll be comforted by the fact that it's backed up by the land. And usually the bank's you know, first efforts and best efforts are to foreclose on the property, sell it and get their money back if they have to. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit different than Tom and Jason start a corner store and we want to get a small business loan and we're going to have to guarantee our, our Candy Inc. store. Well, now all of a sudden maybe the store will will go bankrupt and we're on the hook for all the debts. You know, in the case of real estate, there's a mortgage on the property. There's a first charge on the property. The bank will get the land, period. So you, investor, providing the guarantee might have a bit more comfort that way. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks so much, Thomas. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I got to say that it's absolutely great content, great information for everyone here. Um, I want to tell everybody that, you know, if you do have more questions, you know, that, you know, Thomas can help you with, by all means, please contact him. Um, I've worked personally with him on writing up contracts. Amazing. Great mind to work with. Um, York, anything from you here before we wrap up? Thomas, why don't you just provide the phone number and the website? And yeah. We will wrap it up. Uh, and we're looking forward to have a presentation in the near future. We've been doing that on a regular basis. So, guys... As long as you will be sticking with our organization, you are going to see Mr. Thomas on a regular basis. That's our promise. Well, thank you, everybody. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, these, these I, I thank you, Eric and Jason, for putting these on. There's a lot of effort that goes into uh, getting systems up and working and getting everyone involved. And I think it's a great thing. Um, I'm happy to speak with anyone. My name is, is Tom Thurmeyer with the Small Business Legal Center. Um, and again, Google us, we're online. Uh, my phone number is 403-269-7252. I'm personally at extension 223, but Small Business Legal Center. Uh, again, we're easy to find and have been around for a long time, dealing with real estate investors and real estate matters for uh, decades and um, you know, happy to help. So if you have questions, we're happy to speak with you. I do deal with investors all the time that are, are in different degrees, just starting or getting along and they want to ask questions about what should I do for me and when should I do it and how much does it cost and what about this other person and all these sort of things. And so we regularly talk with people about that. And I think it's a big benefit to have that discussion first, not later. When Later, it's about, oh, gosh, I've done this. Now what? How do I change it? What, how do I move stuff? You know, it, it's just a completely different conversation, and, and we see it regularly. So thanks to both of, of you for putting this together, and thanks to everyone listening. Again, I, I'm happy to, to speak with anyone who cares to contact me. Thanks so much, everyone. Enjoy. Great day. Okay.
Bye-bye. Street Smart Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the new innovative concept of real estate investing. No more expensive courses. No more high-priced mentors taking your money and leaving you without ongoing support. Become a full-time seasoned real estate investor by participating with our already successful team members. Now is the time to stop talking about real estate investing and start doing. Take action. Just ask and we will help you. We promise one thing, no BS. For more info, www.streetsmartrei.com.